The Problem of Slavery in Christian America by Dr. Joel McDermott Narrated by Joe Salant Copyright 2017 American Vision To purchase this book, go to AmericanVision.org Chapter 3 The Revolution The Movement for Justice, Liberty, and Equality known as the American Revolution, began with James Otis's 1761 speech against Britain's blanket search warrants called Writs of Assistance and climax in the words of Thomas Jefferson. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, the words are as famous as they are immortal. Less commonly known, however, is that they not only serve to enshrine abstract ideals of American independence, but heighten tensions about slavery in the colonies and compel both changes and conflicts. On Otis's contribution, John Adams would later write that the child's independence was then and there born. Adams delighted in Jefferson's contribution as well, having served on the drafting committee that reviewed it and recommended it to the Continental Congress. When he later wrote the Constitution for the state of Massachusetts, Adams appropriated the ideas, All men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. Another lesser-known fact is that Adams' greatest delight was in Jefferson's first draft. This contribution pertained directly to the abolition of slavery. Adams would later recall, I was delighted with its high tone and the flights of oratory with which it abounded, especially that concerning Negro slavery, which though I knew his southern brethren would never suffer to pass in Congress, I certainly never would oppose. Congress cut off about a quarter of it, as I expected they would. I have long wondered that the original draught has not been published. I suppose the reason is the vehement philippic against Negro slavery. We do not have the same wonder today for it has long since been published with a lot of Jefferson's papers. Among the many grievances and charges leveled against King George, the original draft included, He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distinct people who never offended him captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep an open market where men should be bought and sold he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. 
and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us, and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them, by murdering the people upon whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people, with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. This clause was unfortunately expunged from the final, but it shows how the logic of the revolutionary sentiments for equality and liberty should have demanded expression had the proponents remained consistent. Jefferson himself was not fully consistent, as we shall see, but the direct connection between the ideas could not be fully suppressed either, and the perturbations of the social sphere began shifting the tectonic plates of politics beginning in the later 1770s. Real change followed almost immediately. In some cases, simultaneous with the war, in northern states where emancipation began to follow the logic of the Declaration's rhetoric, between 1777 and 1784, six of the eight northern colonies, as well as all the Northwest Territory, later to become Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, all had begun a process of gradual emancipation. New York and New Jersey followed in 1799 and 1804, respectively. Conflict arose where the Southern compatriots not only balked, but entrenched themselves in the institution of slavery and vehemently demanded its perpetuity as a requirement for their participation in the Union, thereby creating a tension which would only be resolved in blood, 1861 through 1865. Revolutionary Rhetoric and Reality Jefferson's phrase ensured that the preservation of life and liberty would hinge upon independence. The logical alternative, therefore, could only mean the perpetual political enslavement of the colonies by her lord and master, Great Britain. Perhaps no threat rang from the pulpits or filled broadsides more frequently than that of slavery should America fail to achieve her independence. Examples abound. John Dickinson of Delaware, member of the Continental Congress and Constitutional Convention, wrote in 1768, Those who are taxed without their own consent expressed by themselves or their representatives are slaves. We are taxed without our consent expressed by ourselves or our representatives. We are therefore slaves. Josiah Quincy offered in 1774, Britons are our oppressors. We are slaves. John Adams added, The most abject sort of slaves. Jefferson condemned the coercive acts of 1774 as a deliberate and systematical plan of reducing us to slavery. The founders and framers, however, too often did not extend their rhetoric to its logical ends, particularly regarding race and slavery. Think only of Patrick Henry's famous liberty or death speech, urging the raising of a militia 
to prepare Virginia for defense in 1775, Henry referenced slavery at least three times in the space of a few minutes. He considered it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. It is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat, but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. Why we stand here idle. What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And such principles created with the institution of slavery manifested nowhere more clearly than in Henry's own life. When questioned by Quaker John Pleasance, Henry confessed, Would anyone believe that I am a master of slaves of my own purchase? His reasoning, by his own continued confession, bereft him of any excuses. I am drawn along by ye general inconvenience of living without them. I will not. I cannot justify it. With manumission remaining illegal in Virginia at this time, however, the best he could do, Henry added, was treat the unhappy victims with lenity. Pleasance inherited slaves from his father, and while forbidden by law initially to free them, did so as soon as Virginia allowed voluntary manumission in 1782. Henry not only did not, he passed his slaves on to his relatives in his will. The neglect of right by a man as famed for integrity as Henry demonstrates the ameliorating power of one's own good will and good intentions may have over the human mind. Henry had convinced himself of the impracticality and inconvenience of living without slaves. He justified his actions by proclaiming his lenient treatment of them. But if one's opposition to slavery, indeed, one's confession that they cannot justify such an institution can be co-opted by a program of merely softening the conditions of that institution, then the entire future of anti-slavery efforts would be doomed to endless tangential improvements without ever touching the substance of the problem. Henry was hardly unique in his acknowledgement of the contradiction. Most of the great fathers of this era were just as ambivalent to any obligation to resolve the tensions they created in regard to blacks. George Washington himself, for example, owned slaves until his death as well. He saw the revolution in terms not only of avoiding slavery in general, but particularly the very type of enslavement he himself imposed on his black slaves. The crisis is arrived when we must assert our rights or submit to every imposition that can be heaped upon us till custom and use shall make us tame and abject slaves as the blacks we rule over with such arbitrary sway, said Washington. Instead of moving him to acts of leadership, 
in philanthropy and equality. Washington's consciousness of the tension drove him to covert measures when necessary. In the early days of his presidency, with the capital still in Philadelphia, Washington feared his attending slaves may come under the Pennsylvania Gradual Emancipation Law, already enacted a decade earlier. In case it shall be found that any of my slaves may, or any for them shall attempt their freedom at the expiration of six months, it is my wish and desire that you would send the whole, or such part of them as Mrs. Washington may not choose to keep home, for although I do not think they would be benefited by the chains, yet the idea of freedom might be too great a temptation for them to resist. At any rate, it might, if they conceive they had a right to it, make them insolent in a state of slavery. Washington also admitted his own economic motives. It behooves me to prevent the emancipation of them. Otherwise, I shall not only lose for the use of them, but may have them to pay for. He certainly felt himself against the grain of the local mores, so he concocted a ruse to send them out of the jurisdiction under false pretenses. Washington. I wish to have it accomplished under the pretext that may deceive both them and the public, and none, I think, would so effectively do this as Mrs. Washington coming to Virginia next month. If she can accomplish it by any convenient and agreeable means, with the assistance of the stage horses, this would naturally bring her maid Aunt Austin and Hercules under the idea of coming home to cook whilst we remain there, might be sent on in the stage. Jefferson, who originally attempted to enumerate the slave trade among the grievances in the Declaration, would continue to blame England for that trade which brought this evil upon us, at least as late as 1814. Yet while mulling the congressional wrangling over whether Missouri would enter the Union as a slave state or free, Jefferson argued pro-slavery. Moral the question certainly is not, because the removal of slaves from one state to another, no more than their removal from one country to another, would never make a slave of one human being who would not be so without it. Aside from being short-sighted, such a legal system would enslave all those children born to slaves, and thus would indeed make slaves of those who otherwise could be free. Jefferson had just used precisely the same arguments which British slave traders had used long before. The same Robert Pleasance who engaged Henry in 1773 would also challenge James Madison nearly two decades later and Madison would fare no better. Pleasance had formed the Abolitionist Society in Richmond and prepared to engage the first U.S. Congress to end slavery. He promptly petitioned his congressman, Madison, to introduce a bill for emancipation. Madison confessed his reluctance with candor. Those from whom I derive my public station, 
are known to me to be greatly interested in that species of property and to view the matter in that light. Long before Citizens United, big money already had control on the seats of the legislature. While all four of these giants of the American Revolution, with the possible exception of Henry, had imbibed deeply from the cup of the Enlightenment, and thus could have been expected to oppose slavery to some degree, it probably will not go without notice that all four were prominent statesmen from Virginia, the state with the largest slave population. We will see below just how absolutely other pro-slavery forces in the South fought even the minor compromise measure Pleasance introduced through that state. In general, however, the rhetoric of the revolution openly and often pitted liberty versus slavery as the terms of the war for independence, while for the most part openly ignoring their own complicities in slavery and the slave trade. For blacks, both North and South, the reality did not match the rhetoric. Revolutionary Conflict Had the practice of slavery occurred only tangentially in the colonies, the rhetoric of the revolution would hardly have presented any difficulty. Not only had the practices of slavery, slave trading, or slave manufacturers saturated virtually all the colonies, but these realities undergirded virtually all of their economies as well. When we hear the rhetoric of liberty versus slavery in this context, and even more, hear men like Washington directly connect the slavery under Britain with the very enslavement of blacks he himself was imposing, we can only assume there was some general consciousness of the tension between rhetoric and reality. From this, we can only anticipate finding a great clash, or at least abiding tension, of the principles during the era of the Revolution. The Continental Congress Sets the Tone The ink had hardly dried on the words, All men are created equal, before the issue of slavery arose in the Continental Congress and challenged their veracity. On July 30th, 1776, Samuel Chase of Maryland threw a crowbar into a discussion of representation. The article in question proposed taxation to pay off the war debts. In proportion to the number of inhabitants in each colony, Chase swiftly moved to amend the article with the word white. Only white inhabitants should be counted for taxation. He reasoned, The Negroes are wealth, a species of property, personal estate. If Negroes are taken into the computation of numbers to ascertain wealth, they ought to be in settling the representation for voting as well. The Massachusetts fisheries and navigation ought to be taken into consideration. It could hardly be made clear that blacks were property, not persons. While it was not uncommon for them to be compared to cattle or horses in such discussions, it was the height of absurdity to say that if blacks should be counted against the southern states for taxation, all the fish in the fisheries of Massachusetts 
should count against that state as well. Pennsylvania's James Wilson pointed out that slaves were already considered taxable in the southern states themselves. Besides, slaves made up half the population of some of those states, and slaves take up lands free men could be working. Against this mild counter came a prophetic retort that summarizes the South's position from here all the way through the Civil War. Thomas Lynch of South Carolina wasted no time making it. If it is debated whether their slaves are their property, there is an end of the Confederation. Lynch thereby made the South's first threat of secession before there was even a confederation at all. Lynch went on to argue, Our slaves being our property, why should they be taxed more than the land, sheep, cattle, and horses? Franklin did see a difference and had to come back, Sheep will never make any insurrections. Lynch's fellow Carolinian, John Rutledge, fired back, the New England colonies grew rich off trading slaves, yet paid no taxes for this. Under the proposed rule, the eastern colonies will become the carriers for the southern. They will obtain wealth for which they will not be taxed. The following morning, when the discussion from the previous day continued, William Hooper of South Carolina rejoined the argument to exclude blacks for the purposes of representation reiterating that, indeed, Negroes are goods and chattels are property. John Adams objected, stating that there is no practical difference between the economic role and output of a slave compared to a northern free farm laborer, yet the northern laborer is counted and the southern slave not. This led Benjamin Harrison, forefather of two later U.S. presidents of Virginia, to propose the first part-person rule, count two slaves as one freeman. The Congress voted on Chase's amendment on August 1st, 1776, and shot it down, 7-4. Georgia was divided, but not before it had exposed everyone's position for the next four score and seven years. The South demanded slaves were property, not persons when taxation by population was considered. If the North would not recognize slaves as property, the South would refuse to unite, or once united, would threaten to secede. The North valued union more than pretty much anything else, the rights of blacks being far down the list. At this early point, the Northern states outvoted the South, but for often neglected reasons, this would not last. Slavery formed the most fundamental tension in a new nation fraught with not only a political debate over interests, but hypocrisies that cut deep, if partly unconscious scars in the national psychology. This seminal debate would grow to commandeer later conventions and ultimately split the country. The Constitutional Convention In the Continental Congress, Throughout the period of the Articles of Confederation, each state had one vote in Congress. Throughout this time, population was only considered for purposes of taxation, for which the southern states vehemently demanded slaves were property and must not be counted. But the Constitution would present a crucial change 
to the standard of representation in Congress. In at least one branch, representation would mirror the state's populations. Suddenly, Southerners believe slaves should be counted as persons under the new Constitution. The result was a new chapter in the same old tension of slavery and racism. While many students of American history have learned the basic nature of the three-fifths clause of the Constitution, fewer have actually reviewed the debate as it occurred in the convention. As with the history of slave laws, taking the time to learn the fuller reality of the details provides a crucial perspective that we only neglect to our detriment. The convention began on May 27, 1787. It took some time before the issue of slavery arose on the floor, but when it did, it would take a grasp on the proceedings that it would not release before the end, and then not for another four score and seven years. On July 9th, William Patterson of New Jersey could hold it in no longer. He entered a discussion over representation and objected to allowing southern states to count slaves as persons for representation. He could regard Negro slaves in no light but as property. They are no free agents, have no personal liberty, no faculty of acquiring property, but on the contrary, are themselves property, and like no other property, entirely at the will of the master. He then pointed out a series of hypocrisies on the part of the Southern proponents. He has a man in Virgia, a number of votes in proportion to the number of slaves, and if Negroes are not represented in the states to which they belong, why should they be represented in the general government? What is the true principle of representation? Is it an expedient by which an, an assembly of certain individuals chosen by the people is substituted in place of the inconvenient meeting of the people themselves? If such a meeting of the people was actually to take place, would the slaves vote? They would not. Why should they then be represented? He was also against such an indirect encouragement of the slave trade, observing that Congress in their act relating to the change of the 8th Article of Confederation, stemming from the debate Chase started in the Continental Congress, had been ashamed to use the term slaves and had substituted a description. The issue quieted and submerged beneath a couple of days of discussion over representation in broader terms, but arose again on July 11th. At this point, Hugh Williamson, North Carolina, ventured the compromise, the census for purposes of representation should include free white persons and three-fifths of those of other descriptions. Patterson was right not only about the Continental Congress, but some in the current convention were too ashamed to encode the word slave in the Constitution. In response, Nathaniel Gorham Massachusetts seemed to reiterate the slave state's hypocrisy. This ratio was fixed by Congress as a rule of taxation. Then it was urged by the delegates representing the states having slaves that the blacks were still more inferior to freemen. At present, 
when the ratio of representation is to be established, we are assured that they are equal to freemen. The arguments on the former occasion had convinced him that three-fifths was pretty near the just proportion and that he should vote according to the same opinion now. Answering, Williamson reminded Mr. Gorham that if the southern states contended for the inferiority of blacks to whites when taxation was in view, the eastern states, on the same occasion, contended for their equality. Prevarication ruled the day, then, as each side vied to protect economic interests with blacks trapped in between and at the mercy of both. Worse, even with Gorham's mild rebuke, it seemed he had begun to accept the three-fifths compromise as valid. Why was Massachusetts willing to give so early? The discussion had only begun. Colonel George Mason, Virginia, argued that while he could certainly not consider slaves as equal to freemen, they nevertheless had so much value that they must not be excluded from the count altogether. In arguing how valuable they actually were, however, he perhaps overstated the case. He anticipated the very capacity of slaves, which would become perhaps the deciding factor in the Confederates' final gasp at the Civil War. They might, in cases of emergency, become themselves soldiers. More on this in a later chapter. Governor Morris, Pennsylvania, objected to equal representation on the grounds that revealed as much racism in the North as in the South. The people of Penna would revolt at the idea of being put on a footing with slaves. Morris's colleague, James Wilson, expressed the same apprehensions also from the tendency of the blending of the blacks with whites to give disgust to the people of Penna. Rufus King, Massachusetts, who opposed fixed numbers as a rule of representation, particularly so on the account of the blacks, concurred the admission of them along with whites at all would excite great discontents among the states having no slaves. The following day, as sentiment moved closer to affirming the three-fifths rule, Southerners expressed more vehemently their core demand. General Pinckney, South Carolina, stated that property and slaves should not be exposed to danger. Edmund Randolph urged strenuously that expressed security ought to be provided for including slaves in the ratio of representation. On July 14th, Madison made it clear slavery was virtually the deciding issue. As he summarized the objections against equal representation in the Senate, his fifth and last point hit the note. It seemed now to be pretty well understood that the real difference of interest lay not between the large and the small, but between the northern and the southern states. The institution of slavery and its consequences form the line of discrimination. General Pinckney kept to his core interest on the four. On July 23rd, he interjected the issue again into a banter of more minor points and reminded the convention 
that if the committee should fail to insert some security to the southern states against an emancipation of slaves and taxes on imports, that he should be bound by duty to his state to vote against their report. The issues of slavery then seem to disappear. But a little over two weeks later, on August 8th, Rufus King, Massachusetts, revealed it was hardly dead. He thought the issue had gone unstated for too long and feared the proceedings would lead to a constitution that would allow slave importation indefinitely and without possibility of objection. The admission of slaves was a most grating circumstance to his mind, and he believed would be so to a great part of the people of America. He had hoped that some accommodation would have taken place on this subject that at least a time would have been limited for the importation of slaves. He never could agree to let them be imported without limitation and then be represented in the national legislature. Indeed, he could so little persuade himself of the rectitude of such a practice that he was not sure he could assent to it under any circumstances. At all events, either slaves should be not represented or exports should be taxable. Roger Sherman, Connecticut, responded that while the slave trade was inequitous, the representation question had already been settled. An odd tolerance for Southern slavery, a sort of loyal opposition, or perhaps the opposite, reluctant loyalty, was growing apparent from some of the New England delegates. The Quaker state delegates, however, did not seem interested in looking the other way. Governor Morris then subtly played the issue, moving to insert the word free before inhabitants for purposes of counting population for representation, thus excluding slaves altogether for that purpose and utterly defying the Southern demand. He then entered into an impassioned diatribe against not just the trade but the institution. He never would concur in upholding domestic slavery. It was a nefarious institution. It was the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed. Compare the free regions of the middle states where a rich and noble cultivation marks the prosperity and happiness of the people with the misery and poverty which overspread the barren wastes of Virginia, Maryland, and the other states having slaves. Travel through the whole continent and you behold the prospect continually varying with the appearance and disappearance of slavery. The moment you leave the eastern states and enter New York, the effects of the institution become visible. Passing through the Jerseys, entering Pennsylvania, every criterion of superior improvement witnesses the change. Proceed southwardly and every step you take through the great regions of slaves presents a desert increasing with the increasing proportion of these wretched beings. Upon what principle is it that the slaves shall be computed in the representation? Are they men? Then make them citizens and let them vote. Are they property? Why then is no other property included? The houses in this city, Philadelphia, are worth more than all the wretched slaves who cover the rice swamps of South Carolina. The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this. 
that the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina, who goes to the coast of Africa and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity, tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondage, shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey, who views with a laudable horror so nefarious a practice. He would add that domestic slavery is the most prominent feature in the aristocratic countenance of the proposed Constitution. The vassalage of the poor has ever been the favorite offspring of the aristocracy. And what is the proposed compensation to the northern states for a sacrifice of every principle of right, of every impulse of humanity? They are to bind themselves to march their militia for the defense of the southern states, for their defense against those very slaves of whom they complain. They must supply vessels and seamen in case of foreign attack. The legislature will have indefinite power to tax them by excises and duties on imports, both of which will fall heavier on them than on the southern inhabitants, for the bohe tea used by a northern freeman will pay more tax than the whole consumption of the miserable slave, which consists of nothing more than his physical subsistence and the rag that covers his nakedness. On the other side, the southern states are not to be restrained from importing fresh supplies of wretched Africans at once to increase the danger of attack and the difficulty of defense. Nay, they are to be encouraged to it by an assurance of having their votes in the national government increased in proportion and are at the same time to have their exports and their slaves exempt from all contributions for the public service. Let it not be said that direct taxation is to be proportioned to representation. It is idle to suppose that the general government can stretch its hand directly into the pockets of the people scattered over so vast a country. They can only do it through the medium of exports, imports, and excises. For what, then, are all the sacrifices to be made? He would sooner submit himself to a tax for paying for all of the Negroes in the United States than saddle posterity with such a constitution. One would have hoped this would have silenced the issue, including the opposition. But the rebuttals immediately flowed. The younger Charles Pinckney, who has outrightly been described as always drawn to the outlandish, outlandishly deflected Morris's remarks, arguing that the fisheries and the western frontier were more burdensome to the United States than the slaves. The issues fell silent for a couple of weeks. But again, the peace would not last. Early in the day, on August 21st, the issue of taxing exports resurfaced. John Dickinson, Delaware, objected that he could not proceed further without an agreement to cap the number of representatives the larger states could accumulate. Otherwise, the small states would eventually be rendered insignificant, and the overwhelming representative power of the large states, Virginia, there would be an encouragement to the importation of slaves. 
after a misguided suggestion from Sherman that the slave issue did not necessarily overlap with the taxation question, Dickinson withdrew. The convention then took the rest of the day discussing taxation on imports in terms quarantined from the taint of the peculiar institution. At length, they arrived at a vote, seven to four. No tax shall be laid on exports. But the unrepublican elephant was still in the room. There had to have been some kind of uneasy suspicion in the room that the question had just passed far too easily in light of the outstanding issue of slavery. I suspect there may have been side glances in disbelief, or those who sat in anxious quiet hoping the next order of business would come as quickly as possible to keep the obvious subject off the floor. It was now the end of the day. Would the South get off so easily? Would anyone disturb the dust that had settled? Surely no one would reignite the issue at such an indecorous moment. Luther Martin, Maryland, spoke up. Martin's skill as a lawyer came in second only to his quantity of drinking. He was widely reputed for inebriation and often showed up to court less than sober. It had even been questioned whether he was drunken while at the convention. If so, then the uninhibited interjection of a drunk was what was needed at the moment. Never one to allow his fellow delegated to hide behind artifice, Martin tossed a bombshell into the mix. He proposed to amend the article just voted upon to allow a prohibition or tax on the importation of slaves. To kick up the dust even more, he pressed not only economic and political factors, but moral as well. It was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and dishonorable to the American character to have such a feature in the Constitution. Martin may have been more intelligent here than often credited. He may have perceived the substrata of the vote previously taken. He may have detected, or even been privy to, the reason Sherman and a few other New England delegates seemed so soft on South Carolina's radical pro-slavery demands. The Southern slave importers were in cahoots with Massachusetts and Connecticut, the two colonies present who were most involved in the slave trade. Rhode Island did not attend, remember. A vote to keep taxes off imports produced by slave labor would mean a continued robust market for slaves. The five southern states wanted it to continue, and so did the two slave trading states up north. So they joined in the yeas. I think Luther Martin refused to allow this association to pass on benign terms. Martin's provocation received a response predictable in all but perhaps its extremity. John Rutledge of South Carolina somewhat clumsily denied any connection between export taxes and slavery, then complained against Martin's appeal to the principles of the revolution. Religion and humanity had nothing to do with this question. He finished just as awkwardly by tipping his hand. If the northern states consult their interest, they will not oppose the increase of slaves which will increase the commodities of which they will become the carriers. Keeping the unspoken alliance apparent, Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut argued that 
Every state should decide for itself what to import or not. After all, the morality or wisdom of slavery are considerations belonging to the states themselves, an otherwise odd position for a northern federalist to take. Finally, Pinckney, the younger, waxed bold again, providing the capstone on the day's work. South Carolina can never receive the plan if it prohibits the slave trade. In every proposed extension of the powers of Congress, that state has expressly and watchfully accepted that of meddling with the importation of Negroes. The position was clear. No slavery, no union. Indeed, this was beyond just slavery. It was for the continuation of the transatlantic slave trade with all its well-known inhumanities. And for South Carolina, at least, its substance was a deal-breaker. This criteria, as the impasse, has been understood by northern delegates already. Way back on July 11th, Governor Morris had declared this dilemma as between doing injustice either to the southern states or to humanity, the latter being the obvious evil of the slave trade, but the former being that he did not believe those states would ever confederate on terms that would deprive them of that trade. With Pinckney's hammer blow, the meeting adjourned for the day, but both sides embittered would pick up the fight immediately in the morning. Wednesday morning, August 22nd, Connecticut's Sherman continued propping up the New England Deep South Alliance by suggesting the abolition of slavery seemed to be going on in the United States already and would probably soon be eradicated by degrees. There was no reason to make it an objection to the new government by pressing the matter. This light ruse certainly persuaded no one who had heard Pinckney close the previous evening with the demand that maintaining the slave trade comprised the chief goal of South Carolina, especially those who desired to end the trade. Sherman was rebutted immediately by Virginia's George Mason, who apparently spent the prior evening preparing a scorching Jeremiah for this very occasion. He pounced. This infernal traffic originated in the avarice of British merchants. There was nothing safer, nor more damning at this stage of American history, than to be aligned with anything British. The British government constantly checked the attempts of Virginia to put a stop to it. The present question concerns not the importing states alone, but the whole Union. He mentioned the dangerous insurrections of the slaves in Greece and Sicily. Maryland and Virginia, he said, had already prohibited the importation of slaves expressly. North Carolina had done the same in substance. All this would be in vain if South Carolina and Georgia be at liberty to import. The Western people were already calling out for slaves for their new lands and will fill that country with slaves if they can be got through South Carolina and Georgia. Slavery discourages arts and manufactures. The poor despise labor when performed by slaves. 
They prevent the immigration of whites who really enrich and strengthen a country. They produce the most pernicious effort on manners. Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven on a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. He lamented that some of our eastern brethren had, from a lust of gain, embarked in this nefarious traffic. As to the states being in possession of the right to import, this was the case with many other rights now to be properly given up. He held it essential in every point of view that the general government should have the power to prevent the increase of slavery. The Deep South New England Alliance did not blink. Ellsworth fired back, exposing the moral facade of Virginia's position. If morality is the issue with the slave trade, why not free all the slaves already held in the country also? That was a blow. Virginia ended the Atlantic slave trade in her state, but certainly not slavery itself. A population of free blacks was exactly what she did not want. Thus, Ellsworth's next blow was a crusher. As slaves also multiply so fast in Virginia and Maryland that it is cheaper to raise than import them, whilst in the sickly rice swamps foreign supplies are necessary, if we go no further than is urged, we shall be unjust towards South Carolina and Georgia. Let us not intermeddle. Ellsworth had exposed the ruse in Virginia's pretended philanthropy. Yes, Virginia wanted to end the trade, but she had no thought of ending the institution. She wanted to eradicate the black population in her midst. Recall the colony had long had a law requiring all freed slaves to be deported within six months. But she wanted to accomplish this while recouping their property value as well. With the continued demand for slaves in South Carolina and, as Mason himself had just mentioned, in the West also, a closed Atlantic slave trade would make the price of domestic slaves rise. It would be a huge boon for a state looking to export its supply or engage in a little domestic breeding. Whether Mason himself was sincerely opposed to the institution or not, there were forces in Virginia that had only one thing in mind, cashing in on a closed Atlantic slave trade. Pinckney the Younger piggybacked on Ellsworth's comments with an argument for the universality of slavery. It must be acceptable because, in all ages, one half of mankind have been slaves. He once again, as he had the night before, offered that South Carolina would probably end the trade soon on her own anyway so let her alone. But he ended with the same threat. An attempt to take away the right, as proposed, will produce serious objections to the Constitution. Apparently, General Pinckney was unimpressed with his younger cousin's essay and returned to Ellsworth's angle, but more blunt. South Carolina and Georgia cannot do without slaves. As to Virginia... She will gain by stopping the importations. 
Her slaves will rise in value, and she has more than she wants. It would be unequal to require South Carolina and Georgia to confederate on such unequal terms. He added that continued importations of slaves would benefit shipping in general, a nod to his northern colleagues across the aisle as well as commerce in general and thus the whole union. He closed by clarifying the threat that no slavery meant no union. He contended that the importation of slaves would be for the interest of the whole union. The more slaves, the more produce to imply the carrying trade, the more consumption also, and the more of this, the more revenue for the common treasury. He admitted it to be more reasonable that slaves should be dutied like other imports, but should consider a rejection of the clause as an exclusion of South Carolina from the Union. James Wilson of Pennsylvania checked the easy tales of voluntary Southern emancipation. No state disposed to end importation anytime soon would be objecting to a Union on grounds that importation might be prohibited. Dickinson seconded the argument. But Abraham Baldwin of Georgia, along with Williamson, both repeated the threat of the South withholding from the Union. Then, General Pinckney doubled down. He thought himself bound to declare candidly that he did not think South Carolina would stop her importation of slaves in any short time. Fellow South Carolinian John Rutledge seconded the motion with just as transparent a position. If the convention thinks that South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia will ever agree to the plan, unless their right to import slaves be untouched, the expectation is vain. The people of those states will never be such fools as to give up so important an interest. The pro-slavery forces had an impregnable position. Only the central states, mainly Virginia, were opposing the slave trade. In order to sustain this position, though, she had to resort to moral arguments. But her moral arguments were a facade covering, at least for some, a desire to grow the domestic trade. Her deeper South brethren realized they could speak candidly about their needs and goals for slavery and, with the interest in the trade in New England, carry a majority, especially after exposing Virginia's true goal of inflating domestic slave prices. In the end, a defeated Randolph dwelt on the dilemma to which the convention was exposed. By agreeing to the clause, it would revolt the Quakers, the Methodists, and many others in the states having no slaves. On the other hand, two states might be lost to the Union. Let us then, he said, try the chance of a commitment. In the succeeding 7-3 to three vote, even Virginia joined the yeas. The Constitutional Settlement the Constitutional Settlement suffered under the overwhelming influence of pro-slavery forces both North and South. What influence was had in the other direction produced only the type of vaguely written compromise politicians so often use to give away the farm while telling their constituents they want it. Thus, historian David Bryan Davis could write that no one could know the true meaning of the Constitution 
while every delegate returned home pretending to New Englanders and Pennsylvanians could emphasize the power of Congress to end the slave trade after 20 years and thus focus their hope for abolishing slavery on 1808. Virginia, however, which desired strongly to end the trade also, could nevertheless assure its countless slaveholders and domestic traders under the Constitution their institutions were safe. Yet under the same Constitution, South Carolina could emphasize that even the advent of 1808 would not ensure a definite end to the transatlantic trade. Her delegates, in fact, could honestly boast that they never would have agreed to any union without the assurance that her slave property would remain protected into perpetuity and some confidence in extending the trade as well. Not only had Southern delegates offered such threats on multiple occasions in the Constitutional Convention, General Pinckney famously leveraged the fact in his own state-ratifying convention. By this settlement, we have secured an unlimited importation of Negroes for 20 years. Nor has it been declared that the importation shall then be stopped. It may be continued. We have a security that the general government can never emancipate them, for no such authority is granted, and it is admitted on all hands that the general government has no powers but what are expressly granted by the Constitution, and that all rights not expressed were reserved by the several states. We have obtained a right to recover our slaves in whichever part of America they may take refuge, which is a right we had not before. In short, considering all circumstances, we have made the best terms for security of this species of property it was in our power to make. Yet we must also not make the mistake of thinking that powerful elites and their interests so dominated the various conventions and assemblies that they failed truly to represent their populations. While a large percentage of the population never held slaves, more on understanding these statistics in the next chapter, this hardly entailed that they opposed the institution, and even less certainly indicated any compassion for blacks. Virtually every piece of evidence we have of the common populations indicates otherwise. For example, even during the Revolution, in the thick of the fervor for liberty and equality, Virginia reacted harshly against the 1782 state law merely making provision for private manumissions as well as publications in favor of emancipation by Methodists, Quakers, and some Baptists at the time. Petitions circulated in 1784 and 1785 declared how citizens had risked our lives and fortunes waded through seas of blood in order that our property might be secure but now enemies of our country had organized a very subtle and daring attempt to wrest from us our slaves. In all cases, these petitions cited scripture as justification for holding their slaves, and in each case demanded not only a rejection of all attempts at emancipation, but a repeal of the act allowing masters voluntarily to do so. Taken together, these five petitions, coming from a total of only eight counties, bore 1,244 signatures. 
the liberalizing trend in Virginia set off by the revolution appears then to have been short-lived. In this atmosphere, one of Robert Pleasant's, for example, freed his slaves upon the 1782 exactment, he faced an army of bureaucrats and hostile neighbors. The former stretched vagrancy and other laws in order to fine peasants for allowing blacks to roam free on a plantation. The latter group dispensed with the formalities of law altogether. The Negroes were beaten and robbed by white terrorists. By 1798, these forces prevailed and the state closed its voluntary manumission window once again. The same phenomena of broad pro-slavery and anti-black demand, as well as persecution and intimidation of anyone favoring emancipation appear in other southern states. The Society of Friends in Philadelphia related in 1804 that Quakers were fleeing in droves, and that soon few, if any, would remain in Georgia or the Carolinas. The same year, a national convention of abolitionists reported of North Carolina that the inhabitants of that state consider the preservation of their lives and all they hold dear on earth as depending on the continuance of slavery and are even riveting more firmly the fetters of opposition. Battle in the First U.S. Congress The mold for a staunch defense of the institution of slavery had been set as early as the Seawall-Saffin debate in the early 1700s, but how entrenched this stance was politically was simply not yet as clear, perhaps because occasion had not had yet been given to test its boundaries. If the arguments at the Constitutional Convention had not yet made the point, opponents could have assured themselves the South was engaged in mere political grandstanding that would soon erode, as it had throughout the North, with the waves of revolutionary sentiment. The South's willingness to ride their rhetoric, even a civil war, manifested clearly in the first U.S. Congress. In a second session, in 1790, a group of Quakers introduced two petitions for the abolition of Southern slavery. The group interjected the first in the midst of a long debate over the assumption of state debts, Alexander Hamilton's baby, and one of the central heated arguments of the day. In the brief time it took them to push for the unusual step of a second reading and committed all in the same day, the ire of Southern legislators had already peaked. A debate immediately ensued. Throughout the arguments, Southern representatives repeatedly referred to the slaves as property and ignored their plights, carrying forward some of the hypocrisy long embosomed in the colonial laws. In the opposition to the Quakers' petition merely to get a committee, Adanis Burke of South Carolina who had opposed ratifying the Constitution to begin with, argued the Quakers were meddling in a business with which they had nothing to do. Apparently oblivious to or ignoring both the indirect dependencies on slavery by Northerners and any consideration of the desires of the slaves themselves, Burke rebutted, the rights of the Southern states ought not be threatened and their property endangered to please people who would be unaffected by the consequences. James Jackson of Georgia immediately bolstered Burke's remarks with an attack on the Quakers. 
Why do these men set themselves up in such a particular manner against slavery? Don't they understand the rights of mankind and the disposition of providence better than others? If they were to consult that book, the Bible, which claims our regard, they will find that slavery is not only allowed but commended. Their Savior, who possessed more benevolence and commiseration than they pretend to, has allowed it. Slavery has been no novel doctrine since the days of Cain. Elias Boudinois of New Jersey and Roger Sherman of Connecticut concurred that the issue hinged upon the true extent of power the Constitution granted the federal government over the states and the slave trade in general. A question well worthy of our consideration. Committing the petition would provoke the debate that would help ascertain the powers of the general government in the case. Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts demurred from that point, but agreed with the Society of Friends and with Boudinot's most recent remarks that ending the slave trade was the cause of humanity and Congress should do what it could constitutionally to wipe off the indelible stain which the slave trade brought upon all who were concerned with it. By this point, South Carolina's Thomas Tudor Tucker blasted the whole discussion over committees, memorials, and regulations as so much smoke obscuring the central desire to eradicate the trade altogether against the Constitution and to the detriment of the states who alone had the power to take up such a question. The contention quickly forced the withdrawal of the motion for that day. The Quakers' cause resurrected the following day with the second petition, this one with the imprimatur of none less than Benjamin Franklin, only a couple months from his deathbed. Franklin's open plea for emancipation added the emotional appeal of a celebrity statesman's dying wish. Tucker immediately tried to squelch the appeal, lamenting that Franklin ought to have known the Constitution better and threatening the direst of circumstances should the wish be fulfilled. First, the slaves would be given a false hope that, once discovered empty, would lead to rebellions that slave owners would be compelled to punish with the severity they were not accustomed to. Moreover, the idea that the constitutional agreement had entailed such powers was a dream. Do these men expect a general emancipation of slaves by law? This would never be submitted to by the southern states without a civil war. Others reiterated these sentiments and went even further. Where one Quaker exponent had suggested he would go as far as he could in extending the Constitution's meaning if he were a judge, James Jackson retorted that the very life of such a judge would be in danger in Georgia. William Smith of South Carolina added that the southern states had a duty to oppose this attack upon them. By every means in our power... He suggested that anyone who gave slaves hope of freedom imperiled Southern property and thus are accessories to the robbery. Thus was exposed very early in the new nation's history how entrenched and implacable the Southern position would remain on slavery and to what ends they were already willing to go to maintain it. Even with such dire threats, however, the South could not overcome Franklin's endorsement in this case. 
The question was called and the petitions were put to a committee by an overwhelming vote of 43 to 14. If such fierce argument had resulted over merely getting abolitionist petitions referred to a committee, the real fireworks were yet to come. When the report on the petitions emerged from committee on March 16th, Tucker tried to negate the whole report with a single amendment. This was immediately criticized as out of order. Debate erupted with considerable ardor on both sides and consumed the remainder of the day. The following morning, Tucker's amendment was ruled out of order. John Brown, Virginia, spoke against the abolitionists, warming up an attack on Quakers by stating Congress should never emancipate slaves to gratify people who never had been friendly to the independence of America. Adanis Burke, South Carolina, took this as a cue to abuse the Quakers liberally. He denied that they were friends of freedom, blasting them as spies and traitors during the revolution. He took such license that the speaker had to call him to order. The clerk recorded that another warm altercation ensued. If measured by the level of opposition from the gentleman from South Carolina, warm is an understatement of British proportions. William Smith embarked on a diatribe that spans 11 and a half pages of the record, rightly described as a harangue that included virtually every item that characterized the South's pro-slavery argument for the next 70 years. The economic indispensability of slavery, the unfitness of blacks by nature for any other state, the horrors of miscegenation, the benevolent sanctions of history and scripture, the manner in which slavery supported a society of culture, refinement, and valor. The description is no exaggeration, and it again demonstrates how the systematic defense of Southern slavery was already in concrete long before the antebellum era, and certainly before the rise of radical abolitionism in the 1830s. Smith held nothing back. Making the basis joke of the issue, he condemned the Quaker memorial as calculated to fix a stigma of the blackest nature on his state. He accused the sect of an intolerant spirit of persecution and called them hypocrites. Did not their own founding document, the ancient testimony of principles of the Quakers, forbid them from engaging in matters of civil government? Did they not believe these were God's prerogative alone in which they should never meddle? Yet here were the alleged Quakers trying to influence the laws. Apparently, they did not believe what they professed or else they had not virtue enough to practice what they believed. Smith then added an argument for absolute states' rights. They retained all the rights of sovereignty they had before the Constitution, except where exclusively delegated and in express terms. This was hardly true, as the word expressly was purposefully omitted from the Constitution and Bill of Rights. But this argument would not be made clear until at least John Marshall's opinion in the McCulloch v. Maryland. It would not be enforced on the slavery issue, of course, until after the Civil War. Suppose, however, that Congress did have such power. Would the southern states acquiesce in such a manner without a struggle? 
Would the citizens of that country tamely suffer their property be torn from them? Smith then played on the strong racist sentiments common to the nation. Did the northern states really want the consequences of having the blacks freed? Did they desire to have all the slaves let loose upon them? Freedom, as virtually everyone agreed, would prove injurious even to the slaves themselves. After all, it was well known that they were an indolent people, improvident, averse to labor. When emancipated, they would either starve or plunder. Proof of these sentiments lay at the desire of those of emancipation to ship them out of the country or to a foreign colony. Not only could pro-slavery advocates like Smith leverage such colonization plans as proof emancipation would be dangerous, but also to exhibit the alleged superior humanity of the slaveholders. Would it not be better, after all, to keep the slaves in bondage with at least minimal comforts and order than to turn loose such wretched, hapless savages upon themselves in a strange land with no help at all? It would be worse for all parties, then, if they were freed in our own midst, and no defense of American slavery would be complete without a climactic reference to the horror of, of misogynation. Did the advocates for emancipation acknowledge that the blacks, when liberated, ought not to remain here to stain the blood of the whites by a mixture of the races? Here, the southern partisans probably had their strongest ground. Even ardent proponents of equality and freedom nevertheless harbored intense racist sentiment and certainly practices. The Southerners easily exploited this fact. Indeed, even the warmest friends to the blacks kept them at a distance and rejected all intercourse with them. Smith inserted this knife, then twisted it. The Quakers asserted that the nature had made all men equal and that the difference of color should not place Negroes on a worse footing in society than the whites. But had any of them ever married a Negro or would any of them suffer their children to mix their blood with that of a black, they would view with abhorrence such an alliance. Then, Smith pulled in weightier authority, citing Jefferson on the inferiority of blacks and the universality of this feeling among whites, including their repugnance at mixing their blood with that of blacks. But if slaves were so inferior, does this not mean they would not make good soldiers in a time of war, and thus become a tremendous burden and liability for defense? This argument presented a bit more difficulty for anyone who professed the utter laziness, indolence, and degradation of blacks would be inconsistent to assert that they would make even decent soldiers, yet they also would not want to own such a liability to defense. In some cases, over half their state's populations. Smith had a solution. In modern war theory, a soldier was a mere machine, and he did not see why a black machine was not as good as a white one. In fact, black troops would have an advantage in appearing more horrible in the eyes of the enemy. 
Upon this, Smith returned the state's rights and attack upon Quakers now combined. The states retained the prerogative in all of these issues. Northerners may not like slavery, but Southerners detested some aspects of Northern culture as well, yet did not try to suppress with national legislation. Take the sect of Quakers called Shakers, for example. They abolished marriage. South Carolina detested such dangerous tenants and pernicious practices, yet they did not petition Congress to deport them. Likewise, South Carolina had prohibited theatrical productions, yet did not try to outlaw them in New York or Philadelphia. Indeed, thought that the toleration of the very Quakers themselves presented an injury to the community because they were pacifists. By this reference, the previous mention of black soldiers constituted a grave insult. At least they would fight. So powerfully did slavery grip the Southern cause that no argument could stoop so low, no ethic or rhetoric too sacred to escape being dragged into its service. Without using the term, Smith alluded that the pact of the Constitution was like a marriage and the North knew exactly what it was getting into when it said, I do. As Smith put it, we took each other with our mutual bad habits and respective evils for better or for worse. The northern states adopted us with our slaves and we adopted them with their Quakers. If the north truly abhorred slavery so much, then why, said Mr. S., did they not cast us off and reject our alliance? Then there was an argument from necessity. The south simply could not be cultivated without slaves. Smith made the typical pitch. The climate, the nature of the soil, ancient habits forbid the whites from performing the labor. He now even had a case in point, Georgia. This colony had been founded for whites only. The original trustees prohibited black slavery because, among other things, they envisioned Georgia in part as a correctional colony to improve the work habits of poor and formerly criminal whites. They did not want competition for the labor for their white subjects, leaving the whites to grow indolent once again. Yet by the 1740s, the colony was crumbling, and some planting factions had already begun crying out to introduce slavery. Permission finally came in 1749, as the original trustees had all but given up their original vision. Two years later, they simply turned over the colony to the crown. Slavers soon made Savannah one of the busiest slave ports. By the time Smith stood on this floor, Georgia had already imported over 20,000 slaves. By the 1860 census, she would contain more slaves than any state except Virginia. Smith, keen to this history, argued from it that the southern states were compelled at length to introduce slaves. This meant also that the broader southern economy could not survive without slaves. Remove slaves, the whole fails and everyone starves. Not only the cities, but the back country as well. Eventually, the injury would reach our northern and eastern brethren as well. From what we have already seen of the North's complicity and dependence on slavery, Smith had a strong political argument. Would the North brave the risks and prepare to sacrifice? Considering his audience of politicians, 
whose interests are almost always that of their wealthiest constituents, the answer was a strongly implied no. Then Smith reached a height of absurdity, which would make for pure farce had not the extreme racism of the day allowed it to grip men with overwhelming gravity. We found slavery engrafted in the very policy of the country when we were born, and we are persuaded of the impolicy of removing it. Even if it were admitted, he said, that slavery is a moral evil, it is like many others which exist in all civilized countries and which the world quietly submit to. In other words, big deal. We accept multiple evils in our midst, yet find the remedies often more impractical than perpetuating the evils, so we live with it. But Smith went further. Far from being the mere lesser of evils, slavery and the slave trade itself were actually examples of humanity. The slave to the Americas itself originated in humanity. For Bishop Bartolome de Casas, himself renowned for humanity and virtues, had recommended the importation of African slaves into Latin America in order to spare the native Indians from slavery. You see how humane it was? Indeed, he concluded, southern slavery improved upon the severity of the Roman slavery. In the latter, a master could literally at will torture even murder his slave with impunity. In comparison, the slaves in South Carolina were a happier people than the lower order of whites in many countries he had visited. Accounts of travelers, even in the West Indies, attested that they had never heard of a Negro being cruelly treated. Of course, we already know this to be facetious from just what history we have covered in the previous chapters. Likewise, we have seen that the laws on the casual killing of slaves and on their protection were not only merely a hair's breadth different on paper, the latter virtually did not even exist in practice. Yet someone like Smith could always find room in such accounts not only to exonerate but to congratulate themselves on their humanity. It is well known, he said, that when the African slaves were brought to the African coast for sale, it was customary to put to death all those who were not sold. Thus, by implication, the slave traders from day one had been doing nothing but saving the lives of all the slaves they could. The Quakers had no idea what they were demanding. The abolition of the slave trade would therefore cause the massacre of the people. Finally, not even the horrors of the Middle Passage could find a critic in Smith. Far from an evil, common sense would tell you the slaves were well taken care of. It was in the merchant's own interest, after all, to preserve the lives and the health of the slaves on the passage. But were the slaves not chained and confined? No more than was necessary. But they were not packed in so tightly that they could not move. They had more room than soldiers in a camp and by a factor of 30 to 17. Smith had to have known he was spouting nonsense. The British Act regulating the space for slaves on ships had passed two years prior to this debate, with the enlarged provision only allowing a space six feet by one foot four inches for each male and less for women and children. 
the famous diagram of the typical slave ship Brooks, packed shoulder to shoulder with 400 slaves, well below the limit, had been published that same year and quickly became a meme overpowering the abolitionist movement. It was copied and spread throughout the Western world and was likely well known already in the U.S., At the very least, an educated man had to have known far better than Smith's remarks, and Smith had deceived himself with highly selective and probably fraudulent information. As entrenched as the South was, the forces opposing slavery were just as resolute, which would inevitably mean a test of these gentlemen's Civil War rhetoric. The committee report on the Quakers' memorial finally reached a vote on the floor on March 22nd. With a narrow count of 29 to 25, it won recognition that Congress could indeed lay a tax upon the importation of slaves. This certainly defied that for which the kingpins of slavery had argued explicitly during the convention. The contest under the new government had only just begun. Revolutionary Lethargy Even where emancipation laws prevailed, they for the longest time solved neither slavery and certainly not racism. We will touch more on the segregation of freed blacks in the next chapter. As for slavery itself, none of the northern states ended it anywhere near immediately. Pennsylvania passed the first emancipation statute in 1780, but it only applied to a future generation of blacks. Slaves below a certain age had to work until age 28 before earning their freedom. Vermont had passed essentially the same feature in its constitution in 1777, but not only did the indentured aspects continue slavery under a new name, there were abuses reported for years afterwards. New York followed in 1799 with a gradual emancipation law that required all existing slaves to remain in bondage for life. This was eventually lifted, but only 18 years later, similar results repeat throughout New England. Massachusetts ostensibly outlawed slavery by its Constitution of 1780, and a state Supreme Court case of that same year upheld the standard. Nevertheless, the state passed no statute outlawing slavery before the 13th Amendment, 1865, and it took nearly a decade before the public gradually ended the practice. While that is still relatively remarkable, the state also hesitated in addressing the slave trading conducted from its ports. The Assembly prohibited it in 1788, with the law extending to virtually all traffic in slaves of any nature, with the provision accepting those ships on current voyages. How this may have been interpreted by those most heavily invested in the trade appears in the fact that the voyages continued until 1801. Finally, Massachusetts also reaffirmed its ancient act for suppressing and punishment of rogues, vagabonds, common beggars, and other idle, disorderly, and lewd persons, including a provision that any person being an African or Negro tarrying in the commonwealth for more than two months and who could not prove their citizenship in any state in the u.s would be arrested and committed to correctional hard labor until the next court session 
then they would be tried, whipped, and ordered to leave Massachusetts within 10 days. This law was readily enforced. A single notice to blacks published in multiple newspapers in 1800s gave warning to a long list of around 200 blacks, mixed and Indians by name, giving them roughly three weeks to get out of the Commonwealth before imposing the penalties. This law remained on the Massachusetts book through multiple revisions in 1798, 1802, 1807, 1821, 1823 and 1825 until finally repealed in 1834. New Jersey lagged behind in emancipation with a bill in 1804, but even then one which contained a particularly onerous provision. Its act for the gradual abolition of slavery allowed masters to abandon the children born to slave mothers, at which point the child became a ward of the state's poorhouse. The state, in turn, paid selected families, often the very slave owners that legally abandoned the child, to foster the slave, now technically a pauper servant, until age 25 for males and 21 for females. This meant, rather transparently, that slave owners could transfer their infant slaves onto the state's dole, then agree to foster them as state-funded paupers for up to 24 more years. Thus, they still benefited from the labor and service while being paid additionally by state funds. Slave owners so widely abused the system in such a short time that merely two years later the Assembly repealed that section of the Act, though left all slaves abandoned up to that point unaffected by the repeal. The subterfuge continued beyond this, however. An 1820 Act decreed that all children born to slaves shall be free, but shall remain the servant of the owner of his or her mother. In 1846, the state, apparently oblivious to the absurdity of the paradox, enacted even a greater one. It boldly proclaimed slavery entirely abolished. Every person held in slavery now made free, and all children born to slaves absolutely free and discharged of and from all manner of service whatsoever. In the very next sentence, it redefined every such person now as an apprentice, bound to service to his or her present owner until such person is discharged therefrom. In the end, New Jersey's duplicity meant the state could boast of freeing all of its slaves while still holding slaves when the Civil War erupted. In fact, the last 16 of these received freedom only by the 13th Amendment in 1865. Rhode Island combined elements found in both New Jersey and Massachusetts. On the one hand, its 1784 Emancipation Law provided freedom only for children of slaves born after the enactment. Like New Jersey, these children were converted to state-funded apprentices and bound until age 18 for females and 21 for males. On the other hand, like Massachusetts, Rhode Island also imposed vagrancy laws as a means of deporting blacks who could not prove their citizenship. Meanwhile, 
1784 law did not even mention the slave trade, so prominent in Rhode Island. A law three years later addressed this omission, but enforcement failed to stop Rhode Island-based ships from hauling some 46,000 African slaves to the southern U.S. and the Caribbean during the next two decades. The Pennsylvania statute may have made matters worse in that commonwealth. Like the apprentice laws in the other states, this converted slaves into indentured servants. The act not only revived the dying institution of indentured servitude in Pennsylvania, it actually lengthened its former terms to last until age 28. The market for indentures acted just like that for slaves, and thus Pennsylvania provided a ready dumping ground where slaveholders in neighboring states who faced looming emancipation deadlines to recoup some of their investment. The number of people in bondage actually may have grown after 1780, while the state nevertheless could on paper diminish the stigma of holding slaves. The gradual emancipation efforts in these northern states were so compromised and feeble that they freed fewer slaves than were voluntary manumitted in southern states like Virginia and Maryland during the same decades. Worse, northerners during the graduation period often availed themselves of the window of opportunity to sell their slaves to the south rather than assume a financial loss by freeing them. By one modern reckoning, New Yorkers sold possibly twice as many slaves to the south than they emancipated. Another broadens the scope. It is probable that, to a substantial degree, the decline of slavery in the North was due not to emancipation, but to the actions of Northern slaveholders who were cashing in on capital gains by selling their chattel in Southern markets. Perhaps no better illustration exists of the utter hypocrisy into which American independence beset by American racism plunged the nation than when Northerners in New York City celebrated a reading of the Declaration of Independence by destroying a statue of King George III. For this endeavor, these self-dubbed Sons of Freedom harnessed the labor of a group of blacks. While it is not clear whether these were servants, slaves, or what exactly, the default relegation of the hard labor to blacks for such a ceremonial act piles symbolism on top of symbolism and condemnation on top of foolishness. The words of Britain's Dr. Johnson penned during the Revolution will forever sting true. How is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? Conclusion At hardly any point during the Revolutionary Era, or hardly any other time, were any anti-slavery laws passed out of fully altruistic, philanthropic, or humanitarian reasons. The Continental Congress did take a step of forbidding all new importations of slaves and to wholly discontinue the slave trade after December 1st, 1774. While some southern states openly opposed this boycott, enough agreed mainly because they could find temporary silver linings in it. Few considered it permanent, even if they wished it so. 
like slavery itself, a temporary ban on transatlantic imports could serve quite useful. South Carolina merchants saw it as a time to redirect cash flow to service debts. Too many plantations eagerly purchased slaves on credit. A reprieve would stop the credit frenzy and leave planters with no excuse but to settle their accounts and be ready with the return of liberty to renew trade. The state went beyond the Continental Congress and imposed its own three-year ban on importations in 1787, specifically for the same purpose. Some that had banned the slave trade nevertheless did so with ulterior motives, or at least with a wide door left open for individuals with ulterior motives. Virginia, as we have seen, eyed a monopoly on a domestic trade, while northern states participated in the same ruse, more surreptitiously under the cover of gradual emancipations. The American Revolution introduced to the colonies a flood of rhetoric that created a new awareness of the evils of slavery and the slave trade. The reception and celebration of liberty, perceived as a national deliverance from slavery, stimulated a natural empathy with those still oppressed and subjected by the very ones doing the celebrating. This awareness had to compete, as all moral principles do, with all the other interests that form the sinews of a culture, some of which grasp the centers of power more tightly than others. Thus, awareness moved some to demand the full logic of the system, total emancipation. Others, it moved enough to confess the evil of the slave systems and thus the contradictions in their revolutionary professions, yet not enough to overcome various justifications for never freeing their own slaves or not doing much to battle the status quo. Even in the North, the forces profiting from slave systems held tremendous sway over the courts and legislation for decades. Still for others, the Deep South, for example, the rising awareness of the revolutionary tension did nothing but push them to retreat into a defense of the system in all phases of thought and to secure every ounce of political power they could get to maintain it. In both North and South, the continuing perception and propaganda of blacks as naturally lazy and criminal prevented honest attempts to establish for them an equal place in society, even when emancipated. With its gradual emancipation schemes, the North was as susceptible to the charge of hypocrisy as the South was preaching liberty. In the end, while some progress had resulted, the reality of the American Revolution had not fulfilled its rhetoric. Worst of all, only the most radical of anti-slavery activists seemed intent on seeing the deficiency as a call to further missions. Answering that call, however, would turn a rift into a culture war and then a real one. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, 
where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.